This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 71 of Here's How for the 8th of May 2018. We've got another abortion referendum coming up that makes six in my lifetime by my counting. Let's talk about campaigning with one prominent campaigner. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. Hi, uh, before we start, I have a quick announcement. I've been doing this podcast for a few years. I've paid all the costs, the equipment, the hosting and all of that. I've paid it all myself out of my own pocket and I don't get paid for my time. It's totally voluntary, so I really hope you like it. I did recently get some inquiries from listeners on how they could support the podcast and that's really gratifying to hear. I'm really glad that people appreciate listening to it. I would like to be able to devote more time and effort to the podcast Basically, I'd like to be able to justify doing it weekly, or at least every two weeks. So here's what I've done. I've set up a Patreon account, so that if you feel the podcast is worth a euro or two, or just a euro or two per month, compare that to the cost of a TV license, well then I'd really appreciate if you could log on there and become a patron. If you don't feel able to commit to that, I've also set up a PayPal tip jar, so you can make a one-off donation. And even if you don't feel able to do that, I've also set up an Amazon affiliate link. When a guest has written a book, in the show notes on the website, I normally link to their book on Amazon anyway. Now, if you use the link on the website to buy that book, or if you follow on from that link and buy anything at all on Amazon, then I get a small commission, and it doesn't cost you anything at all. The one thing I can promise you, anything that I get from any of those sources will go towards upping my game on the podcast. You can find links for Patreon, PayPal and Amazon on the website. That's hereshow.ie. And by the way, the podcast will always be free for everyone, whether you donate or not. I'm always happy when people subscribe. In this podcast, I want to talk about campaigning in referendums, particularly given that we have the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment going on at the moment. And there's a danger, we perhaps saw it in the Brexit referendum in the UK, that unlike in general elections, groups can effectively throw a hand grenade into the campaign and not be around to answer for the result as a government who might be elected would be. David Quinn, fortunately, who I have on the line now, not only is a prominent campaigner in the no side uh, on the repeal referendum, uh, was also a prominent campaigner in the marriage equality referendum three years ago. David, do you think that there's a problem maybe of accountability with referendum campaigning that doesn't exist with general elections? No, um, I would say the exact same thing exists. I mean, it's routine in uh, every type of campaign for each side to object to what the other side is saying, to say that's misleading, that's inaccurate, to not like the other side's posters, um, uh, and to not like social media activity. And it's no different from one to the other. 
Okay. And looking back to, say, 2015, is there anything that maybe in the heat of the moment you said then that in the cold light of day you wouldn't necessarily stand over? No. Not at all? Well, give me something. Uh, okay, well, one, because um, I've been just having a look at that. Uh, by, by the way, what's the relevance of this to the present campaign? Well, the relevance is really uh, what I did in the introduction, which is accountability that I'm concerned in particular about this is the beginning of the sound and shape up like one of these gotcha interviews rather than just an interview that's intended to acquaint people with the facts of this referendum. Uh, so this is the beginning of the sound like a gotcha interview. Well, okay. I but anyway, off you go. See, see what you have. See what you have. Th- that's okay. Well, first of all, I'll say on that that you will have free and unedited uh, reign to rebut anything that I put to you. And, and yeah, I well, don't intend to do that. Okay. W- well, one thing. You asked what I've got. One thing in that case, you said in 2015 about the marriage referendum should the referendum pass a same-sex couple could demand and you said in court a right to marry in church did you really believe that i do of course because it's happened in other countries we've had we've had a case in britain where a same-sex married couple have demanded a right to marry in church i think there's a case um making its way through the courts in britain at the moment certainly they were threatening us they're a prominent couple plenty of money in Denmark, um, the state has told Lutheran churches that they must perform same-sex marriage ceremonies. So, okay, yeah. just, just pa- pa- pause on that for a second. Essentially what you're saying is, and when you say in Ireland, I guess you, and you're a Roman Catholic, I know you're referring to Catholic churches. Catholic churches obviously don't recognise same-sex marriage. You're saying that the danger is somebody could take a, and win a court case that would then force the Catholic church to perform a marriage. That they did not well, believe in. If this is this, if this is the best you've got, no, that's it's a straight up question. You don't is that really have meaning? a whole lot to be honest. Okay, is that? But the, I was pointing, I was pointing to what has happened in other countries. Now, they may well try, they may fail because of our constitution. But if they fail, it would only be because of the constitution. But I must say, if that's the best you can find from 2015, you don't have much of a smoking gun there. I think maybe you're being a little bit paranoid on this, but uh, at, no, at the no, time no, no. And, and on 2015. Okay, let, let me just address the point. Let me address the point, uh, yeah. David. At, at that point, in, uh, divorce had been legal in Ireland for 20 years, but mm-hmm. clearly divorced couples, heterosexual couples, could not marry in the Catholic Church, and that had never been challenged. So be it. But I just said what's happened in other countries. Okay. So, so one, be other, it. one other thing you said that in Denmark, the government had forced the church mm. to perform same-sex the marriages. Church, yeah. And I can appreciate that not everybody might know the ins and outs of the uh, Danish government policy, but I have researched that very carefully, and that's flat on true. There is an established church in Denmark. The yeah. Article 66 of the Danish constitution stipulates that the rules of the church are laid down by law by the Danish parliament. So the Danish parliament is the ruling body of the Danish established church. There is a Danish Uh minister for ecclesiastical affairs who sits in the cabinet, in the political cabinet. There's just no distinction between the church and between that church and the Danish state. Okay, well, you just confirmed what I said that the Danish government has told the Lutheran church they must perform same-sex marriage ceremony. Thank you for confirming what I just said. The now, Danish, becoming a the truly word, the word, the word, no, no, hold interview. on for a second. I've got Are we going to talk I've... about the current referendum or not? Are you going to keep leading people down ridiculous rabbit hole? David, the word that you <sighs> used was the, de- the, the, the Danish government forced the Lutheran Church. Those are not two distinct bodies. Um, the, the Danish government did not have to do that 
and it did, therefore it forced them. Now, are we going to continue travelling down this rabbit hole, or are we going to talk about the present referendum? Are you going to continue your distraction tactics so that we won't be talking about the current referendum? We'll keep talking about the one of three years ago. So which way do you want to play it with your listeners? I'll ask you one more question about the the one three years ago, if that's okay with you. Okay, Um, if I can just ask you to listen to this clip. Yes, because really, if two men want to exercise the right they will have under Article 41 to have a child and they can't adopt, what's the other way they're going to be able to have a child? They're going to have to find some woman to give them their womb and they're going to have to get an egg off another woman. Because what you do is you go to a catalogue from a fertility clinic and you go through the catalogue and you see, well, this hair colour, this eye colour, this level of education, this ethnic group, etc. And you say, that looks like a good match. So we buy this egg at probably the cost of thousands. Mm-hmm. Well, but your problem hasn't stopped there, because guess what? Neither man is going to have a wound. So what happens? You said in that time. there that two men would mm-hmm. have a right to have a child under Article 41 of the Constitution. That was contested hotly by legal authorities at the time, and that clearly hasn't come to pass in the three years since. Well, that's because the uh, enabling legislation hasn't yet been passed. I mean, the surrogacy, the, the, the bill that would regulate the likes of surrogacy and egg and sperm donation has not yet been passed into law. But when it is passed into law, then a same-sex couple will have exactly the same right to a, a same-sex married couple, well, and not just married, will have exactly the same right as, as a as a opposite-sex couple to avail of surrogacy, etc. So everything I said in that is 100% true. So thank you again for confirming that I was correct in 2015. You're doing your listeners now a great service because you're proving that my predictions then were correct. And now can we start talking about the present referendum? Are you going to keep down this rabbit hole? Would, would you agree that there's a distinction between having a right to pursue a family and a, having a right to be supplied with children? Um, the, the right is to use whatever available technologies are around, and this is a legal right, mm-hmm. uh, to have children. So if an opposite-sex couple have that right, and I don't think anybody, by the way, should have a right to avail of surrogacy. I mean, um, I think surrogacy is a bad thing because it basically commodifies children, and it also is nearly invariably poor women who give up their rooms for the nine months in return for money. Mm-hmm. So I'm against anybody using surrogacy, just to be clear. And I'm also, I'm also against the purchase um, of somebody else's sperm and somebody else's eggs by whoever it may be. Mm-hmm. Single married, same sex, opposite sex, whatever, because I think that commodifies children as well. And this is not an uncommon position. And in fact, in Sweden, they're moving towards a total ban on all forms of surrogacy, and it's mainly feminists who are driving that campaign. Mm-hmm. All right. That, that's, that's, so, I understand so I'm delighted to talk about this. That. Um, but, but just on the single point that you accept there's a distinction between the right to pursue having a child and the right to be supplied with a child. Well, I mean, who's going to supply them with the child? I mean, the state is not going to supply them with the child, but the state is certainly going to set up the apparatus by which they can avail of various technologies to have a child. People can, as you say, make their own decisions on they sure that. Can. In terms of this current campaign, and I'm sure you're aware uh, Cambridge Analytica was closed down recently and there, there was a lot of discussion of what are essentially called dark ads uh, being pushed through social media where nobody knows where they're coming from, nobody knows who is generating the content and certainly nobody knows who's paying for it. What's your view on that? Well, first of all, it can work both ways. All mm-hmm. right. I noticed there was a big feature in the Sunday Times 
at the weekend in which they said that it appeared that Jeremy Corbyn's campaign for Labour last year was benefiting from Russian ads as well mm-hmm. in order to push his and advance his chances of, uh, of election last year in Britain. Mm-hmm. So it can cut both ways. Sure, it can, but do you think it's an ethical way of campaigning? Um, um, all dishonesty is unethical, whoever's doing it. There was, and it was for only a few days uh, earlier this month, a website up which was being promoted heavily by paid ads on social media called Undecided 8. And Never it was, heard of it. Okay, it was being promoted as... Uh, though it were, it, the look of it perhaps was to suggest that it was a neutral website or perhaps uh, from the referendum commission. A dive into the technology of that would suggest that it was developed by the same development team that developed the Protect the Eighth campaign. Are you uneasy with that? Um, I know nothing about it. If what you're saying is accurate, then yes, I am. But go and speak to Protect the Eighth about it, not me. Okay, and are you associated with them in any way? I, I'm not sure. No, what this... no, we're a separate organisation. But again, have them on. Why have me on? Okay, uh, is you there know, a to cross- talk about that? I mean, again, again, you're leading your listeners down rabbit holes here. Are we going to talk about the present referendum or what's in front of the people? Or are you going to continue to lead us down rabbit holes? I'm not sure about the rabbit holes. I'm talking about the campaigning in the referendum. No, no, but you've asked me. You've asked me two ridiculous questions about the previous campaign. Now you're asking me a question that's absolutely nothing to do with me about this one, and you still haven't asked about the substantive issue, which is what's in front of the people, what they're voting for on May 25th. Why are you engaging in these? tactics. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's not intended to be a tactic. The idea of... Because it's a the... tactic. You're distracting, distracting, distracting from the substantive issue. It's ridiculous. The substantive issue that I had intended for this was campaigning I mean, in, this the, will, in the I referendum? mean, this will go down well. This will go down well on Twitter. You'll get lots of applause on Twitter. But who cares? I mean, this is just a ludicrous interview. The reason I asked you about that specifically was because the Protect the Eighth campaign, which who appeared in some way to be connected with this, uh, this, uh, these dark ads, they operate out of 77 uh, Sir John Rogerson's Key, which was the same address as uh, an organisation well, that I drew. Okay, you, well, you were, is, well, you better be careful where you're going with that, okay? Because this is beginning to sound like a smear. I just say again, that has absolutely nothing to do with us. Well, you said that you have nothing to do with that, and I, expe- uh, I accept that. But you were involved with the Mothers and Fathers Matter campaign in yeah, 2015. Yeah, I was a media advisor. But I oh. believe these sort of buildings are used as kind of, uh, as kind of uh, virtual addresses commonly uh, by organisations that don't have big offices. But again, you know, this is essentially a smear tactic you're engaging in now. No, I'm not. And so are you going to leave David, off, be fair on this. I'm, I'm asking questions and I am being no, particularly careful to allow you to answer in full. You're smearing. That in has absolutely way? nothing to do with me. Ask, the, ask Protect the Eight about that. Thanks very much. That's, that, that's fine. I, and I will do that if I can get hold of them. Although I have yeah. to say that's not very easy. And, and you have been available well, uh, to, uh, to the media. That's if that's their business. But I mean, that, I wouldn't, recommend, is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend going on your show because you're attempting a very bad hatchet job here. I'm not attempting any hatchet job. <laughs> of course I'm you are. And it's repeatedly absurd and, uh, and just uh, absolutely transparent. David, there are questions about can, the... Uh, can we talk about the substantive issue? Are we going to keep on doing this? Go right ahead. What is your and the Iona Institute's position on the referendum? Okay, thank you. So, um, if, we, if we repeal the Eighth Amendment, mm-hmm. there will be no constitutional rights left to the unborn child, zero. Um, the unborn child and its rights will be purely in the hands of all future um, dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be up to them to decide what the rights are. Uh, they've already said what kind of, le- of legislation they want. 
And as Josepha Madigan, who's the leader of the Yes campaign for Fine Gael, said on RTE primetime last night, the law they plan would be in line with that of most European countries. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 21 out of 28, she said. Now, if you look around European countries, a very common provision you see it in countries like France and Denmark and Norway and Italy is available on request in the first three months. After that, on mental and physical health grounds. Mm-hmm. Nobody pretends that the law in places like France is restrictive. Basically, any woman who wants an abortion is going to get one. So the law here will not be restrictive. In the first three months, as I say, on demand after that in physical and mental health grounds, in Britain, mental health allows practically everybody who wants an abortion to have one. There's nearly 200,000 abortions in Britain every year. In France, the abortion rate's about one in five. In Britain, it's about one in five. When I say that, I mean one um, abortion for every four births. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the law that basically they want in this country. And 90% of abortions take place in the first three months of pregnancy. So that provision alone means an extremely permissive abortion law. That's what we put in if we repeal the Eighth Amendment. Can I go to a post from Enda Sherlock a short while ago? He said, if the Eighth Amendment is repealed, it doesn't mean for a minute that abortions will happen in this country. We will fight any legislation inch by inch. It will never, never go away. Every election, every by-election, we will make it an issue. Mm-hmm. When we had, and you and I might just about remember the divorce referendum in 1995, mm-hmm. it was put forward I don't know if you were campaigning at the time, but it was put forward by people on the no side that Ireland would then get a marriage breakdown rate on the level of other countries and various examples were given. In fact, there's been no substantial change in the marriage breakdown rate in Ireland. Okay, there's two things to be said there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one is the government has made clear what kind of um, law it wants and it wants a law, as Josepha Madigan said, that is the type of law you typically have around Europe and nobody says the law. Sure, that's that's the law. I'm I'm thinking more of the the practice. So, so, I, I haven't been talking about the rate of abortion here, by the way, you'll know. I've simply been saying the kind of law we would have. I don't mm-hmm. know what the rate will go to. I'd be I'm very surprised if it didn't increase. Now, let's go back to 1995 um, and see what happened to divorce and, uh, and marriage breakdown generally since then. Because you can track it census by census. Mm-hmm. So in 1986, the number of uh, um, adults who had suffered a broken marriage couldn't get divorced then, but obviously you could go your separate ways. So 1986 was 40,000. Mm-hmm. It was about twice that by 1996, which was the refer- which was the year after the divorce referendum, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at the last census in 2016, the number had climbed to about 285,000 adults who had divorced or separated. So, 40,000 in 1986 to 285,000 in 2016. That's, 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 that's a very difficult figure to work with, given that you have changes in marriage rates, population, and so forth. Sure, I would put to you, in 2010, the ESRI said, quote, the evidence suggests that no significant upward shift in marital breakdown as a result of the advent of divorce well, in 1997. I mean, I mean again... I didn't make a prediction as to the rate of abortion. I simply said what the law will be if we get rid of the Eighth Amendment. So I don't know why you're asking me about the rate. Um, I mean, the the number of abortions that appear to to take place is about 3,200, roughly go to England each year for abortions from here. Mm -hmm. And if pro-choice campaigners are to be believed, you can add about another 1,500 onto that for illegal use of the abortion pill. So that's 5,000 abortions per annum. Mm -hmm. So that would be the initial total, I presume. 
uh, if this repeal goes through. And in the vast majority of cases, about 97%, the abortions will take place on the healthy babies of healthy women, therefore nothing to do with health care. There's been a massive over-concentration on a handful of very tragic, hard cases, but the vast majority of abortions will take place on the healthy babies of healthy women. That's what we'll be voting to permit. But as you say, you are not making a prediction as to the amount, so you're not making any prediction. Well, that well I'm not making it. Well, I, I, I presume it won't drop below what it is now. It might, mm-hmm. but it could go up 50%. It could go up 100%. I don't know. But I do know that, that the law they propose will, be, will have very few restrictions and that the Constitution will, will give the unborn child no rights at all. You and I will continue to have rights mm-hmm. in the Constitution, fundamental rights that remain above politicians, remain above the Oireachtas, that are left to uh, we the people to decide in a referendum campaign. The unborn child can't vote for his own rights because obviously by definition they're not, uh, they're not in the position and, to vote. And, and can anyway. ten-year-old. But, but David, can I just focus you on one, perhaps a, a tactical issue, but I think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. In the early 1980s, when the, thir- the the Eighth Amendment was passed. The now recently deceased, then Attorney General, whose name is Peter Sutherland. Peter Sutherland thank you, you got to my mm-hmm. name. He suggested that rather than the wording that was inserted, which was perhaps a rather flowery wording talking about equal rights and so forth, that a very very simple wording should be put in the Constitution to say that this Constitution in no way gives anybody a right to have an abortion. That was rejected by pro-life campaigners. Mm -hmm. The way that we got to the situation that we are now is through a complicated series of Supreme Court rulings. But that series of Supreme Court rulings would not have happened if Peter Sutherland's wording had been used. And my point about that is, isn't it essentially putting a time bomb into the Constitution to have these very extravagant wording and, and it's n- that sort of detail just doesn't work in a Constitution. It's fine okay. and well to say we don't trust sure. politicians, those scoundrels in the doll, we think uh, we don't trust them to do anything. But the reality is that there are just some types of laws that don't really fit in a Constitution and no, that, includes, that includes making detailed medical provisions for what might be, you know, a changing medical technology. Yeah, well, okay. Um, uh, the, I mean, I can't remember exactly what Peter Sutherland proposed back in 1983, but it whatever was very wording, simple. It was like eight words or something. It was very, very yeah, simple. Whatever. You see, remember, like, we're not voting on here on an amendment to the pro-life provision. We're voting on total deletion. So zero constitutional protection for the unborn child. The government could have said, okay, we're going to amend it to allow for hard cases only. And that's it. We're not going to recommend a total deletion and zero constitutional protection for the unborn child. What has happened Isn't that in really a smart thing to do? Isn't that really a smart thing to well, do? Well, well, because well, no, things change, because medical practices change. And the, the demonstration is that Irish people, as happened with the, uh, the divorce rate... Right, the question properly. Go, go ahead, um, go ahead. Yeah, so um, in fact, the wisdom of the Eighth Amendment, however it might have been worded, but the basic you know, principle behind it, let's give constitutional protection to the unborn child. Uh, the wisdom of that has been proven by what's happened in neighboring countries because they had no constitutional protection for the unborn child in places like France and Britain or the United States, etc. And so suddenly, 
um, you end up with very liberal abortion laws and the unborn children being killed on an absolutely vast scale. Um, uh, you know, millions of unborn children are aborted around the world each year. I think the number is 56 million. People can check that, but it's certainly in the tens of millions. Um, as I say, 200,000 next door in Britain. Um, so actually, the wisdom of putting the, uh, the protection into the Constitution has been amply borne out um, by subsequent events and previous events in other countries. And what they have done to the rights of the unborn, they have basically destroyed them, uh, with the result, as I say, huge numbers of unborn children are killed each year around the world. One thing that I do want to ask you about is, you, am I correct, are both a founder and director of uh, the Island Institute? Well, I'm founder and I run it. I'm not actually on the board because you can't be both on the board. You, you can't be the fellow in charge of it and on the board. Excuse anyway, me, I got yeah. your job title wrong. Sorry about that. Yeah. But you are a founder well, yeah. and, and I think it's fair to say that you are a uh, yeah, very I'm called significant director, boss. Anyway, just not to avoid confusion, I'm not on the board of directors. Understood. I don't want to get you in yeah. trouble. I am correct in saying that I think the Iona Institute doesn't offer any courses of any type. You don't have any students. You don't have an are we, enrollment are we, or anything. Are we, are we, we're now away from talking about a referendum again, I know. Are you about to lead your listeners down yet another rabbit hole? It's not a rabbit hole. It's a very specific uh, uh, question about, about the question about the organisation. That's what I thought the interview was getting civilised and relevant. Here we go again. But anyway, off you go. Am I correct that the Iona Institute doesn't offer any courses, doesn't have any students, doesn't have any academic staff? Uh, it's you don't have okay. This is I know I know where you're going here. So why do you call yourself an institute? Um, many such bodies do not offer courses or have teachers and are called institutes. Okay. Um, I mean I have um, I have Dr. Angelo Batoni working for me. He's research officer. He's a doctorate in philosophy. The head mm. of our board is Dr. John Murray. We have a Dr. Aina, Aina Johnson. We've had Professor Patricia Casey is one of our patrons. Professor Vincent Toomey is another patron. Mm-hmm. So we are very well academically credentialed people involved with or working for the Iona Institute. But to be clear, you don't have accreditation to give those those people got those uh, qualifications yeah, from reputable any universities. Any more, from- and I'm not comparing us to the Economic and Social Research Institute. It's a vastly bigger organization there that does uh, some fantastic work, but it doesn't accredit its people either. They've all received their qualifications elsewhere. And the reason I ask you is because uh, I know that in the UK, you would not be permitted to use that word institute. Actually, in that's not true. That's not true. I invite people to look up something called the Christian Institute. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar organization to ourselves. Um, and it's permitted to use the word institute. To give you the information that I got, which is from the company registrations office in the well, UK. Well, look at the Christian Institute. That belies what you're saying there. What the I mean, company registration says is to use the word institute. Up, up, approval is given only to those organizations which are carrying out research at the highest level or to professional bodies of the highest standings. You need to show that there is a need for the proposed institute and that it has appropriate regulations and examination well, well, standards. Well, A, that's Britain. Yes. Uh, B, this is Ireland. C, a body like us exists in Britain called the Christian Institute. Look it up. Anybody can look it up right now. Clearly, and to be clear, there's no question that you're entirely permitted to use that name in Ireland. And and it's quite likely we would in Britain as well, because as I say, there's a body like us in Britain called the, called the Christian Institute. People can make their own minds up on that. Exactly, re- exactly. The, 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 and you've the, just led people down another rabbit hole. There's nothing to do with a referendum whatsoever. And well, I was well, led to believe I'd be on here talking about the referendum. And you're leading us down all kinds of blind alleys. It does like this, David, because, and I'm sure you'd agree with me on this, the Iona Institute and you have an extraordinarily successful in getting um, uh, access to the media. Well, I mean, you know, it's amazing to me that people seem to, some people, uh, you see it all over social media, 
seem to kind of resent the fact that there is well, any I'm other not kind of voice I'm just, out there. I'm just pointing out that you have been very successful on that. Well, I've been a newspaper columnist uh, currently in the Sunday Times for the last 24 years. Um, I was going on radio and television long before the Iona Institute was ever founded. And I'm sure mm. if the Iona Institute, if I'd never founded it, I'd still be going on radio and television and have my column. Are there any informal, or formal for that matter, but any informal links between the Iona Institute and Opus Dei? No. Okay. Would you... Is, <laughs> are you going to ask me next, have, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of the United States? No, I'm absolutely This is beginning to sound a bit McCarthyite now. Guild, it's guilt by association it's, again. It's, it's absolutely I mean, I know right. people. I know people in Opus Dei. Some people in Opus Dei are, are good friends and associates of mine. But do we have any kind of... Are we in some way run by Opus Dei or directly or indirectly? The answer is no. Okay. It, it, actually, the question was asking... You'd is, ask me next if I got albino monks, like in the Da Vinci Code, at my disposal. And so why not wasn't on my list. I have to admit that was not on my list. The question that was on yeah. my list was... Uh, is, tongue-in-cheek, obviously. Is there, uh, to a significant degree, a crossover of membership? Um, well, you see, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't guarantee that. I couldn't guarantee I would know the answer to that question, because I don't go asking people, are they in Opus Dei? Mm-hmm. If you had to have a and guess. I don't know what you see, but you see again... This is just a ridiculous type of interview. I'm on to talk about the referendum, and we've spent about two-thirds of our time talking about things other than the referendum. So I think I was brought onto the program under false pretenses. We've spent only about a third of the time talking about the referendum. As I see it, it was about campaigning in the referendum. But and the... I was also about, well, yeah, but we're not talking about that anymore, are we? Uh, okay. And you, and you talk about the referendum of three years ago, yeah, no, and the, now you're talking about reason, who should be called the and who the do I know on Opus Day? The reason that I'm asking, David, and I think that it is important to shine a light on where the arguments are coming from. If you go to the uh, social media of people... I hope people on the other side as rigorous uh, line of questioning as this and bring up as many irrelevancies and lead your listeners down as many blind alleys. If, if, if I'm to, if to, to finish the reasoning, just to finish the reasoning, David, just to yeah. finish the reasoning, there is a very uh, strong theme in social media from people on the no side, on your side of the house. And I'm not accusing yeah. you personally of this, but there's certainly, uh, it's something that would be very difficult not to notice coming up and up and again, mm. of essentially an accusation of foreign control. Are you going to bring? Are you going to bring Colin McGorman? Are you going to bring Colin McGorman on and ask him about the George Soros? I funding? certainly, I certainly would, and he probably uh, has questions to answer on that. And well, if I can it, get hold of him, if, if I can get hold of him, I promise I will do that. And you've got me. And you've got uh, me. Indeed, I was, yes, I was and, and I did mention that you uh, were available when other people are not, and I appreciate that. But mm-hmm. my point is that there is, at least in the social media, a degree of conspiracy type thinking uh, who cares what's on social media I mean I, I mean social media is just a ridiculous place an awful lot of the time okay everybody knows this and here's how unrepresentative of public opinion social media is mm-hmm. when I last checked a few months ago Labour had something like two-thirds as many followers as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael combined, and Sinn Féin had more social uh, Twitter followers than those two parties combined. Now, uh, Labour's currently about 6% in the polls, and the two main yes, parties and are I can, I, can, I can go on so, the website, so, and I can have a million yeah, followers on Twitter who are all in yeah. India and have never sent a tweet, and that's, that's quite yeah. easy to that's quite yeah, easy yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, so what organize. I'm saying is, is it, it, it's on the, people make all kinds of accusations on social media. You don't give an accusation any credence because it's said on social media. You've got to actually have some substance behind it. Because otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, absolutely a question, not, and that's a exactly why I'm going after the substance. Williams. 
And there's a question in journalism called, and it's, it's the impossible to answer question, and it's a smear question. Yeah, I'm not I accusing agree. you of doing this, I'm accusing some of the people on social media of doing it. Yes. So, do, do you still beat your wife? Yes, yes, so I understand. Says, just you, answer you, the no, 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 I don't. Uh, and it puts this horrible thought into people's heads. And that's what's going on here in social media. No evidence at all, and yet they say it, and next minute I get asked a question about it. That's not journalism. I think that Opus Dei is a, uh, oh, uh, an extraordinary organisation, and I think it's reasonable to ask... It's not really, to be honest. Th- ...about the connections. What's they got to do with anything? I mean, like, we are what we are. Like, I mean, as you say, we have, um, we have, a, big pu- we have a big public profile. Mm-hmm. Um, we answer the questions, you know, which are thrown at us. We're often out in very hostile circumstances, like here and now. That's fine. Um, we're well used to being out in, in, in kind of combat-type media situations. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, the fact is, we are willing to put ourselves out there over and over and over again to defend positions that, shall we say, find disfavor in politically correct circles and attract lots and lots of abuse, lots of hostile questions, lots of finger-pointing, lots of paranoia, lots of suspicion. And to a certain extent, this interview is demonstrating everything I've just said there. David Quinn, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you like the Here's How podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most of all, make your views heard. Call us on 076-603-5060. Go to the website for sources and David's links. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Here's How podcast on Twitter, and also you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.hereshow.ie. And just to remind you, I've created a Patreon account and a tip jar, so if you would like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. And you can even do that at no cost to yourself by using the web link to buy the books that I list in the sources or any other product at all on Amazon. Just follow the link and the podcast gets a small commission. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.